1 John, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses in 1 John. Let me read that for us. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Lord, by Your Spirit, open Your Word to us this morning. Illumine our minds. Speak to our hearts. Help us to see the truth here in these Scriptures that we might rejoice in Christ, our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, an article in 2017 in the New York Times, which was titled, Christmas, Is Christmas a Religious Holiday?, was seeking to establish what people's views in America were in regards to Christmas. And in that article, you discover that there's still a large population of Americans that view Christmas as a religious holiday, and though there are many people who aren't religious, and yet they still tend to celebrate Christmas. But what was fascinating about this article, and somewhat disturbing, was that though many still saw Christmas as a religious holiday, a good majority of Americans didn't believe that the Christmas story of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born in Bethlehem was historically true. In other words, Christmas to them is a religious holiday, but religious holiday merely captures what our secular society believes about religion in the first place. Religion is nothing more than one sense, mythology. It's an ethical system. The Christmas story of the eternal Son of God being born of a virgin is nothing more than the Christian version of Greek mythology. Yet it's impossible to give any serious consideration of the writings of the New Testament and conclude that the Christian story is just its own version of Greek mythology. The apostles, the the writers of the New Testament, are over and over again seeking to demonstrate that what they're recording in pen is what their eyes actually saw. They were eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Peter, for example, in 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. We didn't devise these myths about him. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, this is one of, I think, the great challenges that we as Christians face today. We have to proclaim to a secular, naturalistic people that the records of the New Testament are not mere mythology, but they are historical, theological accounts of what actually happened in real time, in real human history. This is our challenge today. And the Apostle John, writing this letter here, titled 1 John, is facing a similar issue. It's different, but there's similar problems that he has to address. John is writing to these believers because, in one sense, the essence of Christianity is under attack. There are false teachers attempting to remove the very foundations of the Christian faith. John writes to these believers, and and most likely these believers were in Ephesus, and he he writes to them to, to reassure them of the things that they believe concerning Jesus Christ, and to call them to continue in what they believe, and also to give them assurance of the eternal life that they have found in Jesus Christ, whom he describes as life itself. And so in these first four verses, John unpacks for these believers and for us what I think the essence of Christianity is. And if I were to summarize what John says here about what Christianity is, it's simply this, Jesus Christ. Christianity is Jesus Christ. There are several things we learn about Jesus here in these first four verses. The first thing that we see in this passage is the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, the pre-existence of the Son of God. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now you'll discover if you ever read John's gospel or read any of John's letters John loves to speak in very abstract language. That which was from the beginning, which we have touched, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've heard. What is the that? What is the that that was from the beginning? Well, in verse 2, we gain a little more clarity on that which was from the beginning. He refers to, in verse 2, the life that was made manifest... And a little further down in verse 2, he says, the eternal life which was with the Father. So that which is from the beginning is the life that was made manifest, the eternal life that was with the Father. Now if you're familiar with John and his gospel, you know that the life is none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, John chapter 1, this is what we read in John's introduction to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ 
claim to be the light of the world. And John is saying here, the life was the light of men. You think of John eleven twenty five, where Jesus is speaking to Martha in light of Lazarus' death. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Or in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. So that which, is, which was from the beginning is none other than the Son of God who is life. But what does John mean when he says that the life was from the beginning? Some have argued that this is merely referring to the beginning of Jesus' life on earth. Though that's possible, it's, it's very unlikely. I think John, in this simple statement, is referring to the pre-existence of the Son of God. Christ didn't come into existence at His birth. He already existed as the Son of God in eternity, and He entered into our humanity at His birth. He already existed as the Son of God in eternity past. And the reason why I think this statement is referring to his preexistence is tied to what he says about Christ in verse 2. Right? Verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning. And then in verse 2, he says, the eternal life which was with the Father. In other words, John's referring to the eternal state of the Son of God with God the Father before He entered into our world. And this same idea is conveyed also in John's Gospel intro. In John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. Right? That which was from the beginning, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The eternal life that was with the Father. So here in this simple clause we see the eternal pre-existence of the Son of God. John is making a declaration that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He has always existed. The second thing we see in this passage is the historical incarnation of Christ. The historical incarnation of Christ. John goes on to say in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, the we, right, he says we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, is most likely in reference to the other apostles. But we need to ask two things about what John says here. First, Why does John give so much focus to the human senses? Right? Hearing. That which we heard. We we heard that which was from the beginning. And he repeats the same word in verse 3. So twice he mentions hearing that which was from the beginning. And then he says that which we saw. We've seen with our eyes that which was from the beginning. And he emphasizes the scene more than any other. Four times he makes mention to scene. In the next clause he says, he says uh, we, that which we looked upon. And then in verse 2 it says, and we have seen it. And verse 3, that which we have seen. 
So over and over again, John is repeating himself by saying, we saw that which was from the beginning. But not only that, we touched. We touched that which was from the beginning. And most likely this is a reference to Jesus in Luke 24, 39, after he has risen from the dead and the disciples are in this room and he appears all of a sudden in the room, even though the the doors are locked, and he says this to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So repetitively, John for some reason draws his readers to the fact that he and the other apostles heard, saw, and touched the eternal life, that which was from the beginning. Now why does he draw their attention to this? Well, it's most likely that the false teachers that John was dealing with were denying the human nature of Jesus Christ. This is why in chapter 4, verse 2, John tells the believers to test the spirits. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then hear this. Here's how you test the spirits. What's the test? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, if a preacher shows up at Royal York Baptist Church and he starts preaching and telling you that Christ has not come in the flesh, that is not the Spirit of God speaking. Christ has come in the flesh. That is how you know the Spirit of God is at work. Now it's possible though we don't know for sure, that the church was beginning to deal with the early rumblings of what we call Gnosticism. The idea that the material is evil while the spiritual is good. Now you can then think about what these false teachers would would be promoting in regards to Jesus. If the material world is evil while the spiritual world is good, then there's no way the Son of God could come in the flesh. It's highly likely that these false teachers were teaching that the Son of God did not actually come in human flesh, but He simply appeared to be in human flesh. But He actually wasn't. And so John wants to make clear from the very beginning of his letter, that Jesus didn't simply appear like he was in human flesh, but he was actually fully human. They heard him. They saw him. They touched him. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus, unlike these false teachers who were twisting the truth for their own purposes. So this is why John is emphasizing the senses He wants to make clear that the Son of God really did come in the human flesh. That answers the first question. But it also, in one sense, answers the second question we need to ask here about verse 1. How were they able to hear, touch, see that which was from the beginning? John wasn't from the beginning. 
Yet he claims to have heard, seen, and touched that which was from the beginning. And the answer lies in verse 2. Look at the end of verse 1, going into verse 2. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So the reason why John can can declare that he touched and saw the eternal life, that which was from the beginning, is because the life, Christ, manifested himself. He revealed himself. He entered into our history as a human. And John repeats this same idea at the end of verse 2 as well. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This is the wonder of Christmas. The eternal Son of God entered into our human history and clothed himself in humanity. There's a story about a a little girl who was scared and got out of bed one night and, and went into her parents' room and she woke up her dad and And he said to her, what's wrong? And she said, I'm scared. And he responded to her, there's there's nothing to be scared of. Remember, God is always looking out for you. And she said, I know, but right now I need God with skin on. I need God with skin on. She needed to know that not just God is looking out for her, but that God was actually there with her. And that's what Jesus is. God with skin on. As John 1.14 declares, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father full of grace and truth. It's as though the author entered into his own story in order to rescue those within the story. This is the great confession of the church. As the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. What is it that we confess? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's what John is describing here in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, the pre-existence of Christ, and now here, Christ incarnating himself in human flesh. But why does John see this as such importance? Why does it matter whether the Son of God actually entered into our world as a human? Does it make any difference whether or not he merely appeared as a human or that he was actually a human? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. It it does make a difference. For one, the incarnation is one of the central beliefs of the Christian faith. As the Apostles' Creed declares, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. If the incarnation didn't happen, then none of that is true. It's either true or it isn't true. If the Son of God did not come into the world as a human baby, as the apostles and the authors of the New Testament claim, then you lose Christianity. There is no Christianity without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, just as there is no Christianity without the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. Secondly, without the incarnation the Son of God becoming a real human being in the person of Jesus, there is no salvation for humanity. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, describes this, and he says, in reference to Jesus being our high priest, he says, since, there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, therefore, so since he is the one who helps the offspring of Abraham, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. It was necessary for him to be made like humanity in every respect so that he would be a faithful high priest who would make propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is the idea of justice having to be satisfied. Jesus, as our human high priest, died for his, our sins, and in his dying, he propitiated the holy justice or the holy wrath of God. Our salvation is utterly dependent upon this act. Which means, if the incarnation didn't happen then neither were our sins paid for. Without the incarnation, there's no salvation, there's no reconciliation with God. The history of the church has proclaimed this from the church fathers to the reformers. Gregory of Nyssa declared, Christ, having become what we are in our humanity, he through himself united humanity to God. He had to become humanity in order to unite humanity to God. This is why John is stressing that the eternal life was made manifest. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is central to our faith and is absolutely necessary for our salvation. So when it comes to the essence of Christianity so far in this passage, we have seen the pre-existence of Christ the historical incarnation of Christ. And the third thing we see here is the authoritative witness to Christ. The authoritative witness to Christ. 
John doesn't just tell us that he and the other apostles heard, touched, and saw Christ in the flesh, but also that they've been given the task of testifying and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So three times, John makes mention to the responsibility of announcing this truth. Once he says the word testify, and twice he says the word proclaim. Now both these words are similar, but they are both also a little different. The word testify primarily has to do with being a witness to what one has seen. The picture is that of a courtroom, and you've been called in as an eyewitness, and you must testify to what you saw in that situation. That's why seeing and testifying are so often linked in the Scriptures. You see this, for example, in verse 2, right? He says, we have seen it and testify to it. And not only that, in in chapter 4, verse 14, John again says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John and the other apostles did not see themselves as fictional storytellers. They viewed themselves as eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And all of them, except John, though in one sense he did lay down his life, all of them laid down their lives in order to bear witness about seeing Jesus Christ in the flesh. The other word, proclaim, carries with it the idea of the authority of commission. In other words, they were not just eyewitnesses and they not just testified to it, but they were commissioned by Christ's authority to proclaim Christ. As John Stott states, in order to witness, the apostles must have seen and heard Christ for themselves And in order to proclaim, they must have received a commission from him. John in these verses is claiming that he and the apostles were commissioned by Christ to proclaim with authority the truths pertaining to Christ. His incarnation, his death and resurrection. They were commissioned by Christ to preach his gospel to a lost and dying world. That through their witness and proclamation, the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all the nations. This is so important for us to understand, especially in our society today. There's a growing movement of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, yet they reject a great majority of the apostolic witness that has been handed down to us in the Scriptures. 
In other words, they, they want to or they claim to follow Christ and his words, but they reject the words of his apostles like that of Paul and John. And if you were to ask them who this Jesus is that they claim to follow, you'll discover it's not the Jesus that you read about in the New Testament. It's the Jesus who has capitulated to their sinful styles, sinful lifestyles. The Jesus they speak of is really the Jesus of their own imagination. But we need to grasp that it's the apostolic witness by the Holy Spirit that reveals to us who Jesus is. We don't make up who Jesus is. The apostles handed down to us who Jesus is. Hear this carefully. To reject the written apostolic witness of the New Testament is to reject Jesus Christ and Christianity. You cannot claim Christ if you reject the teachings of Christ handed down to us by the apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus is speaking to the apostles and he says this, these profound words in verses 13 to 15, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is declaring that the apostles will be led into all the truth by the Holy Spirit. And that's why in 1 John 4 verse 6, you can turn there. Look, just turn a page over. 1 John 4 6, John says something very profound. Now, he's contrasting himself and the other apostles to these false teachers, the, the spirit of falsehood. So look at verse 2 of chapter 4, which we've already read, but I just want you to see the context. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. That is, these false teachers, they're from the world, the world listens to them. But then he says this, look at verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if you claim to know the God of creation in the face of Jesus Christ, John's saying, then you listen to the apostolic witness. If you reject it, you don't know the God of creation. Now, John is either a lunatic for making such a claim, or he was actually commissioned, given authority by Jesus Christ to proclaim and testify to the gospel of Jesus and what Jesus commands of his people. 
And of course, then you're reminded of Ephesians 2, 19, where Paul says, So then, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then he describes how the household of God is built. Built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You cannot claim to know and follow Christ if you reject the witness and proclamation handed down to us through the sacred scriptures, the scriptures that we are looking at this very morning. So in this passage, we've seen the pre-existence of Christ, the historical incarnation of Christ, the authoritative witness of Christ. This is the essence of the Christian faith that John lays out But what's the purpose of it all? What's John's goal in telling us these truths? And that leads to our final point. The goals of this apostolic proclamation regarding Christ. There are two goals that John describes in verse 3 and verse 4. The first is this. Family fellowship. Family fellowship. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. So the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. The first goal is Christian fellowship. But notice that there are two aspects of fellowship that John is referring to. There's fellowship with one another, right? So that you may have fellowship with us. But there is also fellowship with the Father and the Son. And you cannot have the one without the other. One must have fellowship with the Father and the Son before one can have a shared fellowship with his fellow humans. Now, in order to understand this, we need to ask, what is fellowship? Fellowship is not merely hanging out. It's not merely friendship. The word fellowship is an inherently Christian word. It expresses the shared participation we have in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This shared participation. As John Stott states, it is the Christian's common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes them one. And this is why you cannot have fellowship with one another apart from first having fellowship with the Father and the Son. Because Christian fellowship is a shared participation in the God of salvation. Now, you might be wondering why John, out of all the things he could list as his goal for why he proclaims Christ, he chooses fellowship. Are there not more important things than mere fellowship? What about salvation and redemption? What about having your sins forgiven? What about eternal life? If we understand Christian fellowship rightly, then we'll understand that fellowship actually captures the full meaning 
of our salvation. Salvation is fundamentally reconciliation to God. It's broken relationship restored into fellowship, into communion. How did Jesus describe eternal life in the Gospel of John? In John 17.3, he says this, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing, not, not intellectually, but knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. You see, salvation, as we see in the scriptures, is fundamentally about being adopted into the family of God, which means Fellowship with God and his children, in one sense, best captures what salvation is. So when John says, I'm proclaiming these things to you so that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, John's capturing what the objective of our salvation is. Fellowship with God and with one another. Which means, friend, to devalue or neglect fellowship with other Christians is to devalue the salvation that you've been given in Christ. To not take serious or treasure fellowship with other believers is to not treasure the salvation that we share in Christ. I wrote this down, and I think this is my way of thinking of Christian fellowship. Let me, let me read this for you. My picture of fellowship. You're a riffraff street rat. I got that from Aladdin. But you're invited to the dinner table of God the Father and His Son to fellowship with Him only to discover that there are other scallywags like yourself at the dinner table as well. And what startles you the most is that you all seem to be getting along just fine. In fact, some might even say you're beginning to love each other. So much so that instead of eating that last slice of cheesecake, you joyfully pass it to your new friend sitting beside you, though at one time this friend was once your enemy. And you would have on the street fought him to the death for that last piece of cheesecake. But there's something about the Father's presence that has changed you and the scallywags around the table. It's as though without realizing it, the character of the Father has been rubbing off onto you. You and the others are becoming like him. And without realizing it, you're beginning to love what he loves. and And that which he loves are the other street rats around the table. And this is what I call Christian fellowship. God saves a bunch of scallywags like us from our sins and places us at his dinner table and tells us we are all family now because we have fellowship with him and his son Jesus and therefore we ought to love each other because we've been given the family name. This is the goal of John's proclamation about Christ that we'd have fellowship with one another as we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But John doesn't stop there. 
He has a second purpose, a second goal in mind. In verse 4, he tells them these things that they might have satisfying joy. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now when he says our joy, he's, he's not merely referring to himself there. It's, it's everyone all-encompassing, you and us. In other words, I'm telling you these things so that, that our joy, your joy and my joy, may be complete. Now I marvel at statements like this in the scripture. Because it undermines so many false ideas that Christians have grown to believe. I cannot tell you the amount of times I have heard preacher after preacher, and I've probably said this already, say things like, God's not concerned about your happiness, he's only concerned about your holiness. He's committed to seeing you become holy, but he doesn't care all that much whether you're happy. Wrong. Listen, God isn't a stoic. God is all about your holiness, but he's also all about increasing your joy in him. He loves to see his children happy. This was part of the message the angel gave to the shepherds in Luke 2. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I am sending forth Christ so that you would be full of joy. John 15, 9-11, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? I have spoken to you about abiding in my love. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's why Jesus came. To see his children full of joy. But here's what we have to understand about joy. Joy, happiness, gladness always has an object. All moments of happiness and joy are a result of delighting in something. So when John says, I'm writing these things that your joy may be complete, what's the object of our joy? What's the object that, Paul, that John is referring to? The object is that which was from the beginning. The eternal life, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's explaining to them Christ, and by giving them understanding of Christ, he is aiming to increase their joy in Christ. Church, God hasn't given us his word merely to understand who Jesus is, but to delight in who Jesus is. Understanding isn't enough. Satan understands and he hates all that he understands about Christ. There will be millions of people who understand, but they don't love or delight or find their joy in Christ, and they will spend an eternity apart from him. See, when I preach, my goal isn't merely to give you understanding of God's word. 
I want to give you understanding so that as you're sitting there, there will be welling up within you a delight and a joy in Christ that will cause you to want to break out in praise, singing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. He is my glory, my salvation, my hope, my peace, my comforter, my soul satisfier, my my bread of life, my living water, my everlasting happiness. That's what he came to be and came to do in your life. Every moment of joy in Jesus is an act of stubborn defiance against this sin-soaked, sorrowful world. Every moment of happiness in Jesus is our rebellion against this fallen world that seeks to kill our delight in our Savior. Joy in Christ is our declaration that the suffering of this fallen world will not have dominion over us. Joy in Christ is the means by which we defy the world. It's how we triumph over our enemies. It's how we triumph over sin. It's how we triumph over our calamities. I'm not here speaking of wishful, naive thinking. We as Christians, and I know many in this room, are aware of the fallenness of this world. We know the realities of sorrow, despair, anguish, depression, There will be seasons in our lives of deep sorrow, pain, suffering, even depression. But we have an everlasting hope that will not allow our despair to have the victory. You see, for the Christian, the sun will rise, the clouds will part, and the glory of the sun will fill our hearts with an inexpressible joy. And this joy that John speaks of here in this passage is both now and future. We are given foretastes of this joy now. But the fullness, the the culmination, the, the pinnacle of this joy is future. When we will look upon the face of our Savior and the happiness and delight will feel no human words could ever convey. I think God gives us these little foretastes of joy and delight to keep us persevering to the day where that foretaste will be eternal and evermore increasing. If you are like me and you like cookies, it's like that little taste of the cookie dough which gives you a little foretaste of the bliss that will be once when the dough is baked. Friends, this is what the essence of Christianity is, not the cookie. This is what the Christmas story is truly about. The eternal Son of God, the eternal life, manifesting himself in the flesh, bearing our sin on the cross, rising from the dead so that we might have fellowship with God and one another that will culminate in our everlasting joy. Christianity is not fundamentally an ethic, a philosophy, a mythology, an ideology. It is Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. And he offers eternal life and fellowship and everlasting joy to every scallywag sinner who will but only repent and believe upon 
the Savior of the world. He offers you life with him. He offers you fellowship with him. He offers you his eternal, all-infinite joy. Will you embrace him this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we simply ask, be our joy. Be our joy. Fill our hearts with delight in you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.